Welcome to AAF District Forecast, the show that puts you in touch with advertising leaders, emerging talent, and industry news from across Florida and the Caribbean. And now, here are your hosts, District 4 Governor John Ruff and Communications Co-Chair Jacob Edenfield. Welcome to Episode 4. Let's get to it. The summer conference in Sarasota has wrapped, and it was a huge success with a great turnout. Congrats to our Angel Award Best of Show winners, Burnett Garcia in Jacksonville, Don & Co. in Tampa, and Grova Creative in Tallahassee. Well, it's hard to believe, but we are getting close to the American Advertising Awards season. Some competitions may already be open, so check your local club website for more information on how to enter. All eyes are set on Tallahassee, as your local club leaders are heading to our state capital to lobby on behalf of the advertising industry. And speaking of, my interview this month is with District 4 lobbyist Jack A. Bear. He's got his eyes and ears constantly open to make sure our elected leaders are working for us and the ad industry in the state of Florida. And now, here's my co-host, Jacob Edenfield. So today I'm here with Jackie Hardnett. She's the president for Starmark. How's it going, Jackie? It's great. How are you doing, Jacob? I'm doing really well. So I wanted to ask you, first and foremost, who's the best Major League Baseball team and why is it the Chicago Cubs? (laughs) Well, being a Northsider from Chicago, it's a part of our religion that we have to stand by the team. So I wouldn't want to uh, break a break a card in a rule. But basically, I think it's because we've got good heart. Win or lose, we're going to stand by our Cubbies. Right. And they would actually revoke your Chicago permissions, correct? If you said anything other than that. That's right. We would not want to be able to get to a bar in Rig- near Wrigley Field because I had been blacklisted for saying some disparaging remarks on a podcast in South Florida. Exactly. We don't want to get you in trouble with the home team. Right. That and our studio manager is a diehard Cubs fan. And if she heard me saying anything, she would knife me. And she's probably there today, right? <laughs> she is down the hall, so I've got to make sure I'm toeing the line. But the fact that I still have a pennant up from when we won the World Series um, and I'm not keeping current tells you that I am. Uh, I like to uh, be a great fan during the playoffs. You recently spoke at one of the AAF District 4 Attitude events, right? I did. Got to talk to the team. We talked a little bit about Agile and what was happening in the business and how the pandemic was uh, challenging us all. I got to tell you, I got a lot of questions after the fact, a bunch of folks uh, interested in Agile. What is Agile? Could you just, for our listeners, give a brief synopsis of what it is and what it's about? Sure. So um, about six years, a little over six years ago, we were looking to do some reorganization and a team member actually brought it to the attention of leadership as an alternative to creating an office of project management, which is a really supports a waterfall approach to running work that we look at taking the whole agency to use agile methodology. And so we found um, a consultant who had experience with agencies, not other industries, but specifically our own and shut the agency down for a week, which in the beginning I was like, are you crazy? We don't have a week. But in the end, we ended up committing to it so that the whole team could learn the science behind agile first and then the practicality of how to run it. But the, the bones of it are that the team of folks who are doing the creation, whether that's web developers or media strategists or um, creative copywriters, owns the scope of work and owns the responsibility for the deliverable. And they're in on it from the beginning. 
they plan it with the client. They have access to the client to hear direct so that we can come closer to what the requirements are of the assignment and what we want the outcomes to be. And so we're not playing a traditional telephone game of account service to a project manager and a project manager to a creative lead and then a creative lead to a team where lots of stuff can get lost. So at its core, it's about collaboration not only within the agency but with the client direct and it's about delivering work smaller bites of work rather than waiting to the end to in developer world get your whole business requirement doc written and by the time it's written the world has changed and so it's smaller pieces of work higher collaboration and agency team who is responsible for delivering that work at the front line so that they understand what it needs to do and how it can bring a higher value to the client's business. So you also sit on uh, an advisory panel with a bunch of other agency owners, and I'm sure that you guys had multiple meetings during the pandemic throughout the last 18 months. How has the experience at Starmark differed from what you heard from your fellow agency heads? Yeah, so I'm fortunate. We're members of the 4As. We have been for uh, the last 30 plus years, and I do sit on a forum group that's made up of agencies from around the country. So they try to make sure that none of us compete against each other. So I have folks from Chicago and Los Angeles and Boston and Washington, D.C. And I think our agile approach and having five years of it under our belt, you know, It was not a big surprise or a big burden to manage their assignments and collaborate remote. It was natural for them. It wasn't about where they were sitting. It was how they were going to approach the work. And so Agile gave us a leg up on that. And then our hurricane preparedness, (laughs) which uh, is unique to Florida, all of our technology was already in place. All of our working files are in the cloud. We already had project management software that was tracking the deliverables for the team. And so they were all able to sign into that and talk to each other remotely and set the priorities for the the sprint and then for the day and be able to update each other. And so we didn't have the stress of where's my stuff? You know, who am I supposed to talk to? You know, if I'm not in a room with a marker board, I don't know how to brainstorm. You know, we, we, we kind of, we were ahead of all of that. And I think that no one can say that the pandemic wasn't stressful, but I do think it managed the stress of the Starmark team, which then allowed them to put their energy into making the magic that helped our clients move forward. And I forgot to mention at the top of the podcast that Jackie and I actually work together at Starmark. So <laughs> I remember that uh, period in Irma when we were out of the office for two weeks. It was a really interesting dry run for going fully remote last March. I think Jacob wrote some clever Irma awards at the time for the team of who went the farthest and who circled back and all the good things that come with that. I'd forgotten about that. That was actually a lot of fun. Who the had Irmas. lost power? Yeah, the Irmas. <laughs> Who lost power for the longest, furthest (laughs) distance traveled? There was someone that went, oh, it was Katie was actually in Peru and she got trapped in Peru, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we were global during Irma. Um, But I mean, those things, you know, whether it's a hurricane or a past project, you know, we try to say that we want to learn from all those items. And one of my mentors always said, you can make a mistake, but don't fall in the same pothole twice. Um, And so I think those things prepared us. But 
mentally to understand that you are responsible for deliverables and you are not going to have somebody tell you what to do today is a is a pretty global shift for our industry and that took some time and so for this all to happen in our sixth year i think prepared us you know every year we get better at it but i'm sure glad it didn't happen in our second year (laughs) (laughs) we're stronger today than we were in year two and we'll be stronger next year than we were in year six so i have told my forum group of the other senior leaders of agencies that we burned the ships. We're not going back to traditional work. At my last meeting, several of them are trying to look at their project management services or shared services or what they should do. And one of the group, as a result of our talking over the last couple of years, has eliminated project management. They're not 100% agile. They're trying to move in that direction, but they just decided, why do we have people who bang all day into whatever job management system you have, recording what people did for the day and making sure their timesheets are in and making sure things routed. Like, how does that make any sense? You know, where they had several full-time heads just banging into systems for system's sake. Another one, you know, said to me, well, what should I do? And I said, stop hiring people who tell people what to do. If you can't bite off the big agile apple, (laughs) start with You shouldn't hire anybody who needs to be told what to do, you know, maybe with the exception of interns who need to be guided in their first job experiences. But you also don't want to be hiring anybody who finds joy in telling people what to do because that's not an ownership of the work. And, you know, I'm a project manager born by heart, you know, um, I've crossed over lots of disciplines within the agency in my tenure, but, you know, I kind of like to keep the trains running on time. It's one of the things I do best myself. And so I've had to step back and, you know, it's very easy for me to be the shell answer girl and solve people's problems or give them a direction to run in. But that's not a long haul strategy. That's a firefighting in the short haul. And that's not going to bring joy to your people or um, black to your bottom line. And a couple of years ago, Starmark was actually contacted by the Wall Street Journal to talk about all of this. I think Agile was having what I call a moment on the national stage. So we were contacted by one of their folks on the on the workplace desk. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's super cool, right? That's one of those milestones where my dad was pretty happy that I was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> um, it's, it's not the Rolling Stone, but yeah, it's pretty darn close. <laughs> yeah, so Agile is probably one of those marketing bingo buzzwords that is overused and has many different meanings for many different folks. And that's what the journal was really trying to sort out is how corporations were using it and how agency teams were using Agile and how they were using it together. And so they were looking for our point of view as leaders in the agency world of how that was working for us. But they were also looking for the point of view of how team members thought about it. And so they interviewed us along with some corporate brands to talk about it. And Jacob, I know we made yeah. you famous in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal during that. So you can, you can Google Jacob, Wall Street Journal, and you'll see his quote. But I think the thing that was important about it is we all spoke from the heart, right? We're, we're privately held. Um, so we, uh, we just tell the truth. <laughs> And um, that's what she was looking for is just some, how does it work? And it's not easy to change an approach to an industry that's been around a long time that employs tens of thousands of people who all have been doing it one way for a very long time. Yeah, so the journal called us and we got on the phone and we were able to tell them how we felt about it. And it was a, a good result for all of us because it brings a level of credibility 
obviously, when um, the journal wants your point of view. Uh, yeah, for sure. That was one of those moments where it didn't sink in, but then I woke up the next day and I'm like, oh my God, that happened. <laughs> well, listen, I've got plenty of agency presidents who have said to me at conferences that we've spoken at or in some seminars that we've been a part of, like, we don't need Agile. We're doing great. And, you know, we're winning awards and our clients are happy and we're, we're getting stuff done. And I said, are you getting it all done on time? Are you doing it right the first time? No client changes? you know, no surprises. It's all just tickety boo. Congratulations. <laughs> Can I come work for you? Yeah. Um, and he, they're like, well, you know. And that's actually an interesting segue to something else that I'd like to talk about. You want to let our listeners in on the new news? Sure. We're super excited. We have moved our headquarters space to the main, which is on Las Olas in downtown Fort Lauderdale. It is the premier office new location with all the latest and greatest technology and a beautiful complex that the Starmark team actually branded a few years ago. So it felt like we were coming home, but we wanted to look at coming back to the office differently than the industry is. You know, again, as a part of the forays forum and the boards I sit on for South Florida, you know, we've all been talking about it for the last year of when are we bringing our teams back? How are we bringing them back? What are we going to, as members of leadership, allow to happen or ask to happen? And when we looked at it, and we looked at everything that we have accomplished over the last 18 to 19 months for our clients, we just said, you know, asking a team to come to the office Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, or some other version of whatever hybrid definition you want, makes absolutely no sense. And there's no logic um, behind it other than trying to tell somebody what to do, which, you know, as we talked about earlier, is not something we want to do. So we decided that we want the team to work where they will be most productive. And that might be at our new headquarters, that could be in their home office, that might be in a client's office, that might be somewhere in the field from an industry perspective, but that we will organize with each other when we need to collaborate with each other in person, when we're going to collaborate with each other in the virtual world, when we're going to work together, and now where we're going to work together based on the type of the work that we're doing. Because some work is certainly better when we are in person. And we know other things might be better remote where you have a less distractive environment. So in true Starmark fashion, we're calling it orbiting because we like to brand in the star world. But it's uh, there's no place for hybrid in a star markers vocabulary right now. Of course, as a senior leader who likes to come to the office, I want to see as many folks at headquarters as possible. And we're building the office out to welcome team as well as clients as a great place to do great work together. But what I really want is fantastic work, very productively done, that's going to change our clients' business. And that should be done wherever the team thinks is the best place to do it. Yep. It's very cool. I'm very excited. And Jackie, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to our listeners today. It was a blast letting everyone know what's coming next. Well, I thank you. Jacob is uh, very good at what he does. So it's my honor to represent them and my partners, Brett Searcy and Peggy Nordine, along with Dale Barron, our executive creative director. We're having a blast working with a great group of people doing great work. Government relations isn't the sexiest topic, unless we're talking about sex, which we aren't. But for real, government relations is the reason why we were founded in 1904. And here in District 4, we have a paid lobbyist. And today, he's my guest. Now, actually, Jack, do you know that Siri gets your name right. 
Did, did you know that? Has someone told you that before? Siri, yes. Some so, of the other voices, not so much. <laughs> so Siri must have uh, some sort of a, a French background, um, I'm thinking. I, right? I would guess, yes. Actually, uh, yeah. So for the listening audience, I, I'm hoping. I asked Siri to call Jack Hebert, and she corrected me saying, calling Jack A. Bear. Excellent. <laughs> I knew I liked that lady. Jack, I guess my first question to you, and, and I know that everyone wants to know, is what is it like to be the best dressed and have the best hair in all the district? Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. I mean, Don't, this... <laughs> uh, you should, uh, John, you should be a lobbyist. Uh, you're pretty, pretty slick. I mean, I can't say that I'm the one who, uh, I'm the only one who thinks this. I mean, there are, there are a lot of people in the district who, uh, to look up to you in that realm. So, okay. So. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm setting some kind of a bar. So give us a, give us a background about, uh, your history with AAF. Yeah, sure. Sure. Glad to. So, uh, probably like, actually, uh, I was thinking about it last night. I think, um, next year marks like 30 years, God forbid. Wow. But it was, uh, the initiation was, I want to say it was an Addie's or maybe it was another event. I remember being dressed and having too many drinks and, um, the, uh, Tampa Bay president needed a government relations chair. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I can handle that. Right. And, uh, it was all kind of, uh, not downhill, I'd say uphill from there. You became president at some point, correct? I was president of Tampa uh, in between that. And after I was done with that uh, duty, um, government relations chair for the district for multiple years. And then that uh, that slid into actually uh, professionally, you know, representing the district later on when, uh, when the previous lobbyist retired. What got you into government relations? Well, it was kind of a, um, not a path that most people that do, uh, that do this follow. Uh, most of my colleagues nowadays are political science majors, attorneys, uh, that kind of stuff. And so to be an advertising guy and following that route into politics was kind of unusual. Early in my career, post the advertising degree from journalism school, I befriended uh, somebody in the Tampa Bay area uh, and um, hanging out on the beach a lot. We both lived out on the beach. He uh, mentioned to me one day he wanted to run for office and needed some help. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to. What could I do? He said, well, our our, uh, brochures and graphics and direct mail and all that need some help. And uh, I said, yeah, they sure do. And uh, of course, that was it. That was it uh, moving forward. Over the, um, uh, we were successful in that election, worked in some other elections after that, became known as kind of the advertising guy that had a political bent. That led to working for a national direct mail company that just did political work, political fundraising, and also uh, political voter mail contact around the country. And I did that for about a decade before I opened my own shop in 94. And had an agency, and the, uh, the the mission there was pretty simple. It was there's so much bad political advertising. This is not going to be hard, you know. With a little bit of a little bit creative and a few new ideas, we could bring a new level to the the political arena, and that's kind of the niche that uh, we carved out. So we became known as kind of an agency that specialized primarily in political and government affairs stuff. Of the bad advertising that you can look back on, does does one stand out to you? Oh God, no! Yeah, John, it all was. Um, you know, they're they're just uh, you know they were devoid of ideas. Every brochure looked like uh, like the other one. 
every everybody was you know convinced it had to be red white and blue you couldn't deviate from that uh-huh. and uh all of it very very cookie cutter and uninspired so no i can't uh, i can't remember uh any of it being special do you recall one that you know you know from that point forward so like mid to early 90s so what what's what political spot stands out to you uh across all the genres what 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 stands out to you as being some of the best you've seen Oh, I think in terms of the political stuff, I would say, you know, if you step way back, some of the uh, the early uh, humorous, if you want to call it attack ads, um, the one particularly against John Kerry when he was running for president, attacking back and forth the screen while they were, um, you know, saying it, one year he was in favor of this, the next year he was in favor of this position, the next year this position. The waffling, and, uh, yeah, as I recall. The waffling, and that and that kind of started uh, there. You know, quite a quite a bit of stuff. If you if you dial way back to Nixon McGovern, we're talking now. You know, seventy two. Probably the the watershed. You know, piece that a lot of people pointed to that kind of changed the whole scenario was the uh, piece that uh, was done with a little girl uh, yep. picking the petals. Yep. Off the flower, and then that that blossomed into a. A nuclear, uh, you know, cloud. And, yeah, we, uh, we studied that in psychology of advertising, as I recall. So oh, that, yeah. That one oh, stands yeah. out to me. I remember in Art and Copy, uh, which is a fantastic film. People should mm-hmm. see that. They talked yep. about the guy that wrote The Reagan Spot with the Bear. Did you like that one? Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Also, also different. Um, there were quite a few pieces in Reagan's campaigns, I think, that were notable. The uh, a Morning in America yeah. uh, was a, a great piece. And, uh, yeah, he had that that kind of raised the bar for everybody uh, moving forward, coming out of the 80s. As far as, like, the American Advertising Federation and government relations, what is, what is so important about that and our industry? On a number of levels, it's important. You know, number one, it was really the founding premise for the for the for the association, for a trade association. I mean, the idea, the basic idea of a trade association is to improve the environment for that particular industry, whether it be the political, you know, environment, the economic environment or whatever. That was the basis for the founding of the AAF and just about every other industry. If you don't, uh, if you don't keep an eye on government, you know, government has a nasty habit of, of picking on people that are either weak or not watching or a combination thereof. And, um, it's just the nature of the beast uh, that if you're, you know, if you're not there, as we like to say, if you're not at the table, you know, you're likely on the menu. So you have to, uh, you have to be ever vigilant to make sure that government, government's not necessarily evil. I think we all agree it has a purpose in our life. But uh, many times, most times, those decisions are made by people that are not well-versed in the intricacies of our industry or any other industry or making those decisions. And so advocacy to help educate those people, uh, those decision makers is, you know, is, is pretty darn important. Easily the most important thing we do. Yeah. And I think it makes sense. And, and I've heard you say it several times is that when you sit back on social media or watch the news, it's always attack, 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 this person's bad, 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 you know, but then when you, when you walk into their office and you sit across from them and you realize that they're just they're normal people just like us who have day jobs and, and they have businesses and they have families and, you know, they come up to Tallahassee and they don't make a lot of money. And, you know, so you, I've heard you say it a bunch of times, but it, it, it is an eye opening experience when you go there and you sit across from them at, in their office. Definitely. Definitely. They're unfortunately, you know, John, the uh, 
the the media loves to play you know the negative in all this so if there is a scandal if there is somebody that's you know not um, not behaving as they should financially with government resources uh, if there is something bad out there, it becomes the story of the day. And that becomes the headline on the newspaper, the, the top of the social feed, uh, the six o'clock news thing or whatever. And um, they, you know, rarely, maybe at the end of an NBC newscast making a difference, you'll see a story that paints a politician in a positive light. Mm-hmm. And uh, that becomes the reality that most people look at. It's, uh, oh, the, you know, there's another, you know, there's another problem, another crook, another crook in the in the public dole. And um, they don't see the many good things that many well-intentioned people uh, do. Political careers, contrary to what most people think, I'm talking about at all levels, all the way from dog catcher up to, uh, you know, president of the United States are not the most glamorous careers in the world. Many people think that they are, but uh, it takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of fundraising powers. We tend to ignore that and we look at the seamy side of it, you know, the scandals and those kind of things is, and, and, and kind of blow that across the landscape. And that's really not fair. There's some good people, in my experience over, you know, 40 years, some good people trying to do some really good things. And once you get to know somebody, in that world, at a personal level, uh, your attitudes change completely. Yeah, and delving further into that, you know, have you? I'm assuming the answer is no, but have you ever seen a more contentious climate for politics, and do you see a remedy for it? No, you got. I'm no, not in my lifetime, not in anything I've studied prior to my lifetime, and uh, it's it it is it is disappointing and it is frustrating, and um, I don't, and you know, and I. I I attribute it to kind of three factors that I think we've got, you know, we need, we have a responsibility to all look at together that have kind of gotten us to this point. Number one, and and, and this is looking over the landscape of, you know, federal and, and state legislatures for the most part, the reapportionment process has become very pretty much one-sided in most places. In other words, the, the redrawing of political districts. And in the case of Congress, probably the most extreme. I mean, last I looked, I think less than 10% of the you know congressional jobs, the 535 elected people in Congress, the U.S. Congress, less than about 5% of those districts are really competitive districts, meaning that you know a Republican and a Democrat or an independent for that matter could face off and uh, either would have an even chance. Very, very rare. They're either drawn to be red or blue and um, uh, by the people many times that make the same, make those political decisions. It it leaves a very small number of races that are really can be, you know, fought out on the uh, idea of issues and not partisan, you know, divides. That's unfortunate. Number two, the cost of running for office has gone up, you know, has skyrocketed over the last 10, 20 years. The Supreme Court decision, United, help contribute to that. Running for office is a very expensive proposition. That requires that you spend a lot of your time raising money, not necessarily working on policy decisions, more and more time raising money and beholden many times to the you know people that are willing to, to help you. And uh, that's been polarizing. And, and thirdly is kind of more in a, in a esprit de corps situation in terms of collegiality. Uh, I have noticed the deterioration. I think anybody that follows Congress or even the legislature, the years that I've watched the legislature in Florida, used to be, you know, two two politicians with different uh, views, two elected officials would fight like dogs, you know, on the floor. 
I mean, all respectfully, but, you know, respectfully disagreeing, but really principled, believing in two different things. And maybe to the point, a little bit hot under the collar. And it would not be unusual that later that night, you'd see them both in the neighborhood watering hole, slapping each other on the back and laughing about that experience. Um, <laughs> agreeing to disagree. That w- agreeing to disagree. And that just doesn't happen a lot anymore. I attribute some of that. I mean, I'm going to blame some of it on the evolution of social media. That's a lot of people have thought that, hey, that's the new way that we, uh, you know, that's the way we get together. We don't, uh, we don't go out and have a drink together. We don't go out and spend a weekend together getting to know the other guys uh, or ladies' family uh, or, you know, their personal concerns or whatever. We've kind of taken the human part of it out of it, and that has led, I believe, to a very much more polarizing position where parties Parties and labels become more important, and uh, people just don't have the interchange uh, in in political discourse that they used to have years ago, and that's unfortunate. So you think you know bringing a more humane approach to politics would would be the next best step for this, right? Most assuredly. Yeah. Most assuredly. You know, try try to get a little bit more transparency on the finances. Try to make it, you know, try to return to a, a discussion of issues and person get the personalities out of it. So maybe, you know, maybe our parents and grandparents had it right where you just you just don't talk politics. <laughs> <clears throat> well, it surely made for friendlier Thanksgivings. I will say that <laughs> based on my own experience. Uh, yeah. So let's switch gears. So what do you see sure. on the horizon for issues pertaining to advertising and legislation? Uh, let's see. Digital one, digital two, three would be digital and four would be digital. Um, <laughs> Can you repeat number two? I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, I, you know, the, the the whole ever since Al Gore invented the Internet. I think we've seen the good, that the great good that it can do. And we've also uncovered the great bad that it can do. That's what concerns me more than anything to to their credit, I think Congress early on, uh, the United States Congress realized that you know we had a new we had a new invention here and it, we turned it loose and it was the Wild West and the best thing that we could do was to step back and not not overregulate it, not tax it, not do a lot of things and Congress had the foresight to do that. But um, times have changed in the last 20 years, heck, in the last 10 years, no, the last five years. And I think it's time, you know, for a pretty comprehensive re-examination of all that. And unfortunately, instead of that approach, what we're doing is the, you know, kind of a Band-Aid thing. We're looking at the latest problem. We're looking at the latest data breach. We're looking at the latest uh, bad player out there and uh, trying to put a Band-Aid on that and not looking, you know, overall at the, at the picture. Perfect example is, you know, individual states are moving forward on digital privacy. Uh, situations. California led the charge three, four years ago. We've seen some stuff in in, uh, Virginia coming out in Maryland, uh, in the Northeast. Uh, Florida made an attempt uh, this last year to to rein in some of the abuses and the problems there. And and I think what, what troubles me is, you know, something as worldwide as the internet being micromanaged by at least 50 entities here in the United States, 50 separate entities on top of Europe and everything else and what's going on in every country, it's going to make, you know, a, a, a mess that nobody, you know, that nobody in business is going to want to have to try to learn how to matriculate to be successful. 
And and with that, we've got you know the side discussion of, of big tech and how big can big tech be and how much can they control the rules and the whole idea of monopoly and antitrust situations. I mean, it, the digital divides is huge, and um, I don't see you know in in the political realm and unfortunately politics is coming into all of this too as we've watched um, in the last campaign particularly and deplatforming candidates means that that whole situation i think is going to take all the air out of the room and yeah. um it's it's continuing to do that i think we're going to see more of it at the state level it could easily it, and 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 it bleeds john into the tax situation we've set up this great thing or whatever and then we didn't think about uh, you know and, and we wanted it to grow and we wanted it to be successful but we didn't think about how it was going to change commerce we didn't think there wasn't an Amazon back then to worry about or to compete against. Right. I should stay instead of worry about. That's led, you know, to even more, even more problems in terms of interstate commerce and everything. So I could be completely wrong on this, but I actually see this as an issue where we actually could get some bipartisan agreement. Don't you or am I off base on that? No, no, I, I agree. I agree. I think uh, sooner or later you have to take the politics out of it. If you're going to deplatform a for you know a former president, then maybe you can deplatform the Speaker of the House. Right. Um, you know those are those are questions that uh, really need to be studied and uh, policy decisions. You know, and, and taking the politics out of it because it's that it it has that great power and ability to change you know change everything i mean when you have the when you have the director of the cdc you know most recently saying we we've got a we've got a big problem here it's called misinformation i mean people were reading about some pretty crazy ass things <laughs> on the internet i mean you know let's face it and and to have a leader in in trying to solve working at least to solve the pandemic and saying, look, I, you know, I, I've got my hands tied behind my back here. We've got, we've got information out there that has no basis in science, we, we, you know, whether it's crank or, or whether it's well-intended or whether people believe it to be true, it's a mess. And uh, so I, I think obviously policy-wise, something's got something's to change. Well, stay tuned, right? <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah. yeah, stay tuned. Maybe in a, a year from now, I'll interview and we'll, we'll have made some progress. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's hope. Let's hope that uh, the great promise of the, everything that the internet could bring to us in a good way doesn't doesn't become the evil that uh, that uh, some people are forecasting. So every year, the American Advertising Federation in District 4 heads to Tallahassee and clubs all across the district get together and we go and we talk to our local representatives and we talk about issues and we talk about, you know, the impact that advertising has on the state of Florida economy and the, and the jobs that we create and things like that. Uh, Jack, can you kind of give us an insight about, you know, maybe how, how this all started and, and how it's evolved to where we are today? The idea of visits in the Capitol, you know, whether it be in Tallahassee or Washington, I, is nothing new. I mean, as long as I can remember, um, everybody, um, er, every trade group or whatever usually organizes something to, you know, if, if for no other reason to, you know, shine a positive light 
on the profession. And as kind of a two-way thing to also bring their members to tell to Tallahassee and or Washington to see uh, exactly, you know, how this how the system works and what what change you can affect by being part of the process. So it's uh, it's it's pretty important on both sides. I will say from a lobbyist perspective, it's also usually the most dreaded day of time for if you're a lobbyist, guessing that somebody's going to come to town and say something wrong at the wrong time <laughs> uh, in front of somebody. Uh, but uh, so it, it does contribute to be to, to our stress level. We're always a little bit nervous when when people come that aren't well versed in in legislative protocols. But it's a great it's one of my favorite times, really, because it's it's such an eye opener. And as I as I spoke previously about people having such a negative, you know, the media having such a negative and focusing on the negative of the political process, that it gives you an opportunity to really show the positive part of the political process. And I think the the thing that's that's been um, most uh, interesting to me is to have people come up to me after they spend a day uh, walking around the Capitol, getting either lost or uh, finding their way and, and finding some pretty decent people is they will, you know, they will say, hey, I really wish I had done this before. I have a whole different uh, attitude about these people and what they do every day. Yeah. And um, almost universally, I hear that. And I think that's probably the most, um, you know, the, the most uh, important part of the process is for you to come and walk in somebody else's shoes for, you know, eight or 10 hours and see, you know, what they face and what, what the whole process is. So it's, it's very important, I think, to get people to have a, a different appreciation and a real appreciation for what these people do every day. I'll add to that. And I've heard it at least 10 times. And, e and even when they're not talking to me, I just overhear a conversation saying, that was such a phenomenal experience. I'm so glad I did it. I had no idea. And another interesting thing is when you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, for, for us in Orlando, okay, that's, it's four hours, right? You're four hours away. It's right. It seems like a, you know, just like forever. And then, but then you're, you're sitting there talking to a representative and then you realize he or she leaves, lives 10 minutes down the road from you. <laughs> it's just like the, the exactly. craziest thing. You, you think of them as like living in this bubble in Tallahassee, but then you realize, oh, wait, yeah, that's my neighbor I'm talking to. Exactly. Well, Jack, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. That was some phenomenal insight into uh, the inner workings of the political game, and we, uh, we certainly appreciate it. Well, thank you. I always, uh, always appreciate the chance and uh, love the chance to talk about it. And now I'm going to hand it back over to Jacob. This month, I'm talking to Jade Catuno. She's a recent graduate of UCF and a recent winner of a National Silver Addy. How's it going, Jade? It's going good. How are you? I'm doing well. So let me ask you, um, this is not going to make any sense to anyone who hasn't seen your project yet, but at what point did you decide to make the backgrounds of all of your packaging the same colors as the broth of this ramen? <laughs> Uh, it was kind of unintentional, I will say. I don't, I don't know. I think I started off with an orange because I thought it was just like a random color to like get my little workspace going. And then I was like, oh, wow, this color actually kind of matches the ramen flavor. And then I kind of wanted to go forward with that. And then I kind of matched it with the other flavors that I created. Right on. And for everyone who's listening, if you haven't seen Jade's project, we will post it, um, a link to it on the AAF District 4 website so you can check it out. But we're here today to talk about her project for Oishi Ramen, 
which uh, won at the National American Advertising Awards. So Jade, if you could for me uh, and for our listeners, go ahead and just give me a little bit of background on why you chose this project, how it started, and then a little bit about your creative process. Yeah, so this is actually a, a senior project that's kind of infamous at UCF. You always hear about it going up through the program. You're going to do this big packaging project when you get to your senior year and you spend like a whole semester on it. So that's kind of where this project stems from. And it's very broad going into it. You choose any type of product you want. You make a brand from scratch and then, you know, you just make the product. So I went around my house and I was just like, what is ugly in here? And I, <laughs> I came across like a, ro- a ramen package and I was like, this is kind of ugly. This is, this is a little boring, a little plain. And I was like, I can spice it up. So that's kind of why I chose Oishi. So I adore this project. I started off with just a mood board. I always like to think about typography, colors. I'm like, what kind of vibes I want to put into this? Like what kind of textures? And I do a lot of research on other ramen packages and you know, how do, how do other people approach this? And from what I saw, it was kind of boring and is almost very drastic the way different brands showcased it it's either very much cheap looking and kind of just sad or it's kind of like shin ramen it's a little bold and almost intimidating kind of so i wanted to create like this little medium where it's really fun and vibrant and kind of friendly feeling and that's where this project came about so i've got to ask you you invoke target a lot (laughs) in your description of the packaging and what you were going for and i think you honestly nailed it but talk for our viewers a little bit about the balance you were trying to strike there yeah so in my like little makeup creative brief i talked about this type of target facade where you know it it looks a little nicer than the walmart version but it's still kind of cheap at the same time you still get that accessibility part of it so that was kind of that middle ground that i was trying to strike where i think in our image of ramen it's always kind of seen as this like college students type of meal it's you know it's what you get when you don't have any money to spend on extra groceries you know it's it's a quick and easy option and as a lover of ramen i i think it can be so much more than that and i just like wanted to be like hey you know ramen doesn't have to be boring it doesn't have to be sad it can actually be really enjoyable and like delicious so that's kind of where i went with this just trying to show off like hey this is fun and exciting, but it's still just like your every other ramen. Well, now that you're a ramen expert, I have to ask you, what is your favorite ramen fact? Uh, I don't know if this counts, but I think this is a very not well-known thing. Shin Light Ramen, if you've ever encountered it, is the best type of ramen. I, I'm going to take that into consideration. <laughs> that sounds like a ramen fact to it's, me. Hands down, I don't know what they do with it, how it's different, but it's just, it's better. Shin light ramen. Okay, you heard it here, people. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> okay, Jade, let me ask you a little bit about the 
program at, at UCF, you said that this senior project is infamous, but tell me about all the other program leading up to this. How did you get involved in design and the, you know, the marketing field? What was your journey? So I, in high school, I took this real old school art for computers or design for computers class. And essentially it was just them teaching us how to use Photoshop and Illustrator. And being like a traditional artist back then, I really enjoyed it because I was like, oh, cool. I get to make things like digital and like all this stuff. And I kept going at it. And when I went to college, I was like, I got to choose something. So graphic design was something that I barely knew. It was, it was a term that I just recognized. So I was like, I'll just go for it. And going to UCF and joining the graphic design program, I knew nothing about it. I had heard nothing about it. And I was like, it'll just be whatever. I'll go and get a degree and get out. But honestly, the graphic design program at UCF is amazing. And I'm so grateful to have gone through it. Um, all the people and all the professors there are just amazing. And it's so close-knit and tight-knit being one of the smaller programs at UCF. So you get a lot of interaction, you get a lot of feedback, and the professors are amazing at connecting you with people not only at UCF, but outside of UCF and in like the greater Orlando area. It's really incredible just how much opportunity is offered through that program. And Jade, are you still in Orlando now that you've graduated? Yeah, so I took on a full-time job in Orlando with this agency called Unleash Media. And then I also am a remote lead designer with another studio called Paradigm. Very cool. So tell me about your experience coming out of school and into the professional world. Has there been anything that was surprising to you uh, or anything you didn't expect? Getting out of UCF, my last semester, I was doing a lot of stuff. I did an AIGA mentorship with the Orlando Factor. And with all the Addy news coming out, I kind of gained quite a bit of attention for myself. So I left UCF, I think, with quite a few job offers. And I was so blessed and lucky to have gotten that type of attention. It really worked out because I am now at two jobs I adore, like with all of my heart. It's awesome. <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. Let me hone in on that point you just made about how your career was shaped by participating in the American Advertising Awards. Was that something you expected or could you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So I never planned on applying to the Addies, but <laughs> I think the night before the deadline to apply, one of my professors at UCF sent out um, a message to us and he was like, this is the last night to apply and I think you guys should really do this, like do it. And so we had a, we all had a group chat together and that night was just all of us scrambling to get our work submitted for the Addies and I didn't realize how big it was at the time I thought oh like uh, it's an it's an Orlando thing or like it's a Florida thing you know it'd be cool to get um, something out of it but I didn't realize like that it went like national and so when my work kept going up and up I was I was so confused I was like I thought this is like a one-time thing <laughs> Like, what is all of this? <laughs> well, how about this? Um, I want you to make a pitch to Jade from a year ago telling her why she really ought to enter this award show. 
everything that you doubted yourself about is completely wrong. If you don't apply to the Addies, you will miss out on the chance like of a lifetime, to be honest. <laughs> it sounds like it. I mean, this has been quite a whirlwind for you, it sounds like. Yeah, like... Like I said, I thought, oh, it's just, you know, Orlando Addies, I've heard about it before. I didn't hear anything like about like district or national Addies before. So I was like, oh, cool. Like a local thing. I get to see what everyone else is doing. I don't think I'll get anything, but you know, I'll just apply just because and you know, we'll see like what other people get. And then it went to district and it got gold and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then nationals is just like unbelievable. Um, and let me ask you, Jade, now that you're out, you're a national award winner you're doing a job you love for all of us old folks <laughs> who look to young people to help us stay relevant are there any cool trends or things that i should be paying attention to uh right now or that you're getting inspiration from i don't know if it's trends but i've really lately been loving um typography and i really adore funky type and like um, a break away from the usual like clean sans serif fonts that you see but just like really funky just you wouldn't expect to use it in work but then you use it and it just kind of works i think that's it's a really fun way to bring extra oomph to your work a little extra personality to work my favorite font currently is swear display from adobe fonts if you haven't heard of it the salati options are incredible <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jade, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with our listeners this month. And I'm so glad that you found a happy home in Orlando and really hoping that we'll see you out at some of the uh, the upcoming Addy events. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is really cool. Well, that wraps up episode four. If you'd like to be interviewed or know someone who should be, let us know at our website, aafdistrict4.org. That wraps up this month's episode of the AAF District Forecast. Thanks for listening. And tune in next time for what's new in District 4.